Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Wahid Rahman, and welcome to the Innovation Civilization Podcast by Impasco, a podcast where we discuss everything from technology, venture, history, civilizational progress, and philosophy. Technology really has the power to change the very social fabric of our being and the reality that we live in today. And it's for sure that our 21st century civilization really has gone far. Yet, if you look at the historical data, a lot of civilizations were firstly really ahead of their time and innovative in terms of the technology they deployed. And most importantly, no civilization ever in history has ever been immortal forever. Every time they do fall. So across the series of episodes, I sit down with domain experts to understand and question the first principles, the assumptions behind the fundamental base ideas that shape the reality that we live in today. It's appropriate to say that some of the work that we're doing as a collective human species will fundamentally shape our existential realm. So I hope you enjoy, learn, and most importantly, be enabled to think critically about the topics we discuss. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of the Innovation Civilization podcast. I'm really excited because this episode will talk about the future of transportation, the creation of cities in the air, and how that would affect our civilization. The episode is really split into two parts. The first, we start with the basis of cities, and then we move on into the future. So for our episode today, I sat down with one of my closest friends from university, Pamir Savinchil, who's really an aerospace engineer and investor with a passion for multidimensional mobility, smart cities, and humanity's generational passion for reaching the skies. He currently works for Up Partners, a venture fund focused on investing in enabling technologies for multidimensional mobility, and is really curious about the impact of advanced air mobility, i.e., quote unquote, the flying cars that our civilization would probably have in the coming decades. He's also an avid reader of ancient history. So I hope you enjoy the episode. So, Pamir, without further ado, welcome to the Innovation Civilization podcast, and thank you very much for being here. Absolutely. You're really happy to be here and support Empasco Vision. Um, great that you're doing this. So, let's talk about the first principle. So, one of the things about the podcast here, and this is the first episode in a lot of ways, uh, we want to start off with the first principles, i.e. the assumptions and the definitions of these key technologies, and really the impact ideas that shape our reality. And the realization I've come to in the past kind of year or so is basically like this, that pre-18th century, you've had the philosophers who were the kind of movers and shakers of society in a lot of ways, and everything was under philosophy, right? So it was basically science, biology, psychology and history and ethnography everything was just under that one bucket and post 18th century because of the kind of push against aristotelian philosophy you've had the specialization that started right so what has happened is basically today the quote-unquote philosophers who move and shake the world have become silicon valley technologists you know or technologists in general you know and this is quite my thesis in a, in a lot of ways so kierkegaard has this code basically that the ruling class of society they were really afraid of the philosophers and what they can achieve and the power that they have so what they did is they basically gave them titles and boxed them up in university and called them professors and what has ended up happening is currently the technologists create a worldview and they channel venture dollars 
into that worldview. And that basically scales and shapes our society in a lot of ways. So in a way, in 21st century, technologists, whether they know it or not, have become the philosophers or the philosophers were in pre-18th century. So it's, it's, it's basically like this, that if Zuckerberg today has an assumption of what he thinks is should be the reality and, and should be the outcome for humanity, i.e., for example, connecting people through Facebook. He basically creates something, creates a new feature on Instagram, like an Insta story, and that is literally affecting the social dynamics of every single person everywhere. You know, And whether we understand his first principles and assumptions or not, we kind of buy into it just like that. So technologies really dictate the kind of shape of society in a lot of ways. So first principles is quite important. So just before we start the podcast, I wanted to kind of get that idea around. So my first question is that why do we need cities, you know, and what is the definition for you in cities and kind of why you're so much interested in the future of cities, really? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great, uh, great question to start with. You know, cities are really new when we look at the history of humanity. I mean, if we look at our evolutionary history, we see that perhaps between 200,000 to maybe 400,000 years ago, humans as a species became distinct from all the other primates. But Cities is really a new invention that that has taken place perhaps in the last 5,000 to 10,000 years ago as we see the first um, human settlements take shape and we can get into the reasons why that specific uh, thing happened in point of history. But if we think about a city, I mean, you know, simple definition is, of course, a large human settlement where um, you have a high density of population, you perhaps have more cluttered houses connected by walking distance and perhaps by other modes of transportation as history and technology has progressed. But I would like to give another definition uh, to it. I think if we look at it from a perhaps more capitalistic perspective, I think it's a concentration of physical capital, human capital coming together, and then that creating a acceleration in um, how knowledge capital gets distributed across that large density of population. So I think as uh, buildings, you know, streets come together, you have humans coming into the to the city for job opportunities, for commerce and trade. You know, especially we're looking at professions that are non-agricultural. That's what kind of defines, uh, distinguishes a city from a rural settlement or else. And people in those professions coming together, they don't have to spend their whole day working on a field, trying to sustain themselves through food sustenance. And they're actually able to focus on other types of trades, whether this is, you know, simple arts and crafts, you know, making uh, utensils for the kitchen, or it's actually something, uh, you know, higher level looking at, you know, more more the arts and sciences. You know, cities have really uh, become the platform for facilitating higher levels of knowledge capital to be distributed across society. The very first cities were founded in Mesopotamia after the Neolithic Revolution around the 7500 before Christ era. Agriculture was absolutely believed to be a core prerequisite for cities, which helped preserve the surplus food production and create economies of scale. The conventional view holds basically that with the advent of farming, hunter-gatherers, i.e. our forefathers, abandoned 
their nomadic lifestyles of moving from place to place and due to convenience really settle near each other who live by agricultural production as agriculture yielded more food means that population amped up as a result of it a strong sense of social organization also helped form the cities and they helped the population work together in times of need and allowed people to develop various functions to assist in the future development of civilization although you know this might paint like a very positive picture of what cities have have done for us which is largely true you know urbanization has a direct correlation in most places around the world to gdp and mainly talking about physical capital economic capital here but you know also cities have um, if we look at the last um, 10000 years it has brought negative consequences to civilization from famines to lack of sanitation all kinds of problems around waste management and as we see more recent times problems around transportation and congestion and those kind of things so cities are perhaps not an invention of humans i would say it is more of a path that happened due to agricultural uh, revolution happening and people spending less of their time for food sustenance and you know naturally people moved into the cities as small settlements grew up and we can you know go into the timeline uh, in history mm-hmm. more specifically if you want but i would say that this is largely how cities uh, for me Yeah, that's very interesting and I think it's a kind of general convenience thing and general evolution of organization of society. So I've been reading kind of Plato's Republic and um this is what like 2300 years ago, right? And so he talked about cities as the social and political organization that allows individuals to maximize their potentialities, you know, in a lot of ways. So if you've got basically like different people and, and mainly as nomads right before cuz that's where kind of humanity kind of used to be uh, settling from place to place but once you have that like core place and social and political organization that kind of galvanizes and consolidates the way that your the collective potential is released you know so that that for me was was quite interesting and obviously i think we're going to get into it as well but there's huge advantages to being in a city versus just being a nomad on rural conditions like they reduce the transportation costs of goods and people and ideas are brought together all together in like one spot kind of concentrated right and i think we've also had like city states before right and i think from like athens to florence to maybe constantinople as well so so that that was quite interesting to me that it's almost like no one has actually told humans that hey form a city and live there it's very fascinating to me how that eventually has become the norm and the status quo and normative behavior in a lot of ways so yeah that for me is quite interesting yeah i would say that you know a positive feedback loop has kind of fueled the creation of cities as you said this is not like someone in inventing oh we should build a city now it's it's more about you know people uh, relieving themselves from agricultural work due to you know mainly due to agricultural innovations that happened 5000 years ago you know uh, people started to plow their land like uh, soil tilling you know and uh, breeding and domestication of animals kind of you know allow that and once that was conquered you know less nomadic perhaps semi permanent and permanent uh, settlements came into being as i said people focusing on more the arts and the crafts and uh, perhaps technology and once that happens i would say that it's like a you know something that cannot be stopped you know you you reach the edge and you jump off and you just go without stopping as you know uh, people start trading people start commerce people start other kinds of economic activity that 
requires more labor to come into those cities from the surrounding rural areas. And once you have initiated that feedback loop, more people coming in, more labor coming into the, to the core of that region means that you need more economic activities to sustain those people. And in order to facilitate that, you need a good transportation network, uh, not just uh, uh, allowing labor to come, but also trading with other cities around, uh, you know, in proximity to your city. And once, you know, you create whether roads or you, you know, utilize carts or caravans, or if you're more in the maritime proximity, you build ports and that in itself creates the necessity of more labor. So I would say it's like a runaway effect. Mm-hmm. And they just build on top of each other and the population just grows uh, without sp- stopping. But of course, you know, that had limits and we saw the limits of that perhaps as we started having, you know, worldwide empires, whether uh, Roman mm-hmm. Empire to mm-hmm. uh, Ottoman Empire. But industrial revolution really allowed to break that um, upper mm-hmm. bound for population growth simply because it was another leap of people freeing themselves from more menial day-to-day work and being able to focus on other activities that was enabled by technological innovation leading to efficiency in people's lives. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I think generally a lot of philosophers over time have come up with the contention and the idea of what is the ideal city, you know, what is the kind of ideal city state. And one thing I want to kind of pluck out from Plato's work is basically for him, a couple of things. Firstly, he had this kind of convention of a city having three different types of people so you've got the artisans and secondly you've got the auxiliary militaries and thirdly you've got the philosopher kings so that's that's his kind of ideal version of the ideal republic city so the artisans are obviously craftsmen uh, and when i say craftsmen not only just just purely art craftsmen but also um, industrial craftsmen as well so they're crafting the kind of economic uh, the future of the city and then you've got the auxiliary military who are basically on the bottom of the barrel, but they work as protectors of the city from outside intervention. And then you've got Plato's kind of perfect view of the philosopher king, who are basically philosophers, but they're also kings in in a lot of ways. So they want to have power and leadership of the city just for the sake of leadership, but they're more into knowledge, but they've been forced into becoming kings because that's the ultimate utility of that city. You know, uh, it, it basically gives a very advantageous position. So that for me was very interesting. And the other thing, contention, I think one interesting idea he had was he almost thought that in a city, different institutions are like different organs of the body you know so he had this almost kind of personified view of the city uh like a human body so you just like the human body has got the heart and you have the kidney and others it's it's like the city has different organs uh and each organ has a specific job but what was more fascinating to me was how he said that not organ of the body is created equal just like that in a in an ideal city not every kind of institution is created equal you know so the heart is more important arguably to the kidney you know because you've got like two kidneys and if one is absolutely kind of devastated you still got another one but without a heart you can't live so just like the kind of judiciary and police force and your fire firemen it was interesting to me how he kind of had a stranded view of the different institutions or as organs uh, in the city so yeah that was uh, just uh, quite something interesting i wanted to kind of point out
Welcome back, everyone. Hopefully, you enjoyed the music. The Jetsons were really emblematic of the future. And growing up in my childhood, it was basically on Cartoon Network.、Uh, it used to be either the Flintstones, which was talking about the past of humanity and how it was, i.e., the kind of Stone Age creation of civilization. And then on the flip side, there was the Jetsons, where basically the city was in disguise. And even though it was a concept before, I believe. That's where we're kind of going towards in the future. Not exactly as it is, but maybe some version and iteration of it. So we're going to directly catapult ourselves into the future now and talk about why the future lies within the skies. And that's where Pamir's kind of expertise is really in. So, Pamir, the utility of an idea is only as good as the problem it solves, really. And I look at this as, as more like when you talk about, say, the future within the skies and we talk about, say, urban air mobility, it is a technology push. And obviously, there is the other side where we call the market pull you know, or the needs pull, that it's specifically kind of helping you overcome a certain market need. So tell me more about the kind of. Idea of VTOL in a market pull way that what problems are there with cities currently and why do we need VTOLs and why do we need urban air mobility and how is it helpful? Sure, I should first give a definition of what eVTOLs are and what advanced air mobility、Absolutely. is for our listeners.、Mm -hmm. So, the umbrella term for this new revolution is called advanced aerial mobility, and it's you can think of it as a convergence of multiple technologies. Coming together to enable the vision set by Ford or the the Jetsons that will enable、uh, really a democratization of you know using the skies as a mode of transport. Not you know we have conquered that、uh, with you know、uh, large commercial airliners over the last hundred years. We have matured that technology. You know aviation has become the most safe form of Travel that exists today in a in a commercial sense, so that has really enabled you know transcontinental to intercontinental travel. However, the the place that is left to kind of explore and and mature is looking at the this type of travel, this mode of travel on the urban and regional. Setting. So we're talking about going from one part of the city to another that is perhaps not well connected over thirty, forty, fifty kilometers to things about connecting city pairs, what we call regional air mobility. And you know, this is really the vision of you know as simple as going to your Uber type of mobility as a service app and、uh, booking your. Flight from a rooftop of of a building to go to the airport and catch your flight, or this could be a use case looking at how you would use these advanced aerial vehicles to you know commute into the city and out of the city if if you are、uh, living in a rural area and you don't want to you know sacrifice your quality of life by living in a city. So you know th this is this is the kind of the overall vision, and it's it's it has been in the works since the early two thousands, mainly by startups, and now you know large aerospace giants like Airbus and Boeing have moved into the space. But I would say that they're the laggards here. And with regards to the technology push of this, I will talk about the market pool later. The technologies that are converging that are enabling this is is the following: anything. That allows these vehicles to be electrified. So we're looking at battery technologies, and specifically in the last year, 
hydrogen has been a heat of topic in, in aviation. So the sustainability side is, is key. We're also looking at vertical takeoff and landing because some of these vehicles will be electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, which means that you can use it like a helicopter, but it cruises like an airplane with huge efficiency gains. And this technology has been around since I would say the 50s and the 60s, where the United States government has been experimenting with this technology, but it hasn't really taken off simply because electrification wasn't there. And this electrification and VTOL coming together actually creates a whole new type of aircraft design, which is really the key here. And that is called distributed electric propulsion. You know, traditionally, aircraft have been designed around the placement of the engines themselves. You know, you you look at a Boeing 787, you have an engine on each wing, and then in the middle, you have a tube cigar-like shape. That This has been really the, the case. But now, simply because you can connect your power source to the propulsors using electrical wires, you can place these electrical engines anywhere around the airplane, meaning that the the whole airplane can be utilized to its fullest aerodynamic potential, meaning huge efficiency gains. So this is this is one side of the equation, very, very, very important part of why we're seeing advanced aerial mobility coming up today. And, you know, as we look into the, the future, other technologies include, you know, high, high automation and autonomy. So eliminating the pilot from the aircraft, uh, which will not only enable huge gains in safety, but also huge gains in economic scale. Because these vehicles, usually four to five people, they can accommodate for. And one of that is a pilot. Uh, and having a pilot in there is, a, you know, not just weight, but also, you know, huge salary that you need to pay the pilot. So autonomy that is enabled by, you know, the, the recent revolution of artificial intelligence is really going to be the next step. And it's one of the converging technologies. Next on the line, I would say another converging technology is 5G. So, you know, how to, when you have thousands and thousands of vehicles up in the air over a city like London, communicate with each other in a very low latency and resilient and reliable way. You know, we we can talk about vehicle to vehicle communications, but also you know, on the centralized side of this is the digitalization of air traffic control. So today, the busiest airport in the world is Heathrow, or one of the busiest along with Atlanta and uh, I believe Beijing airport. And these airports mostly rely on uh, radio communication or using voice, which, you know, when you think about it, it's this kind of technology has existed since World War One, And we really need to digitize that. And once you digitize that, you you enable a whole nother capacity and opening up the skies for thousands of aircrafts being able to land over a given area. And, you know, this this technology also, you know, I, I worked in a company called AirMap over the last two years and unmanned traffic management, which is the next step in air traffic control, the next innovation coming, is really going to enable the scale that we're talking about. So I would say that these are the technology push that are that are on the line. And the vision is to the to be able to land, you know, in front of your yard or your garden and pick yourself up and go wherever you want. However, for safety reasons, that is really not possible. So we won't really see the George Jetsons type of uh, flight uh, for a long time, I would say. Oh, that's a shame. I was really looking forward to it. <laughs>
Yes, yes, unfortunately. But we will see it more as a mobility as a service where there will be hubs mm -hmm. called VertiPorts and you will be able to get in your flight and perhaps share it uh, with other passengers. So yeah, so this is the technology push side. Looking mm -hmm. at the demand pool, the market pool. So, you know, our, our cities, as, as we go into the 21st century, are growing in crazy rates. So, you know, if we look at the early 1900s, we have about 20% of people living in within urban areas. In the 1960s, this grew up to be about 30 to 35%, which is a, you know, substantial gain. But if we look at the uh, next 30 years, by 2050, we will have about 70% of all people around the world living in urban locations. This This amounts to perhaps between six to seven billion people. And if you think about this, this is a huge problem, not just from a quality of life perspective, not just from sanitation, water management, pollute, that kind of perspective, but also huge implications on sustainability and how to ensure that people can move and goods can move across, across the city. So, you know, there are about 33 megacities today. And a megacity is basically a city that has a population of more than 10 million. And by 2030, this will be increased by 10. So we'll have perhaps 40 to 45 megacities. So, you know, forget about 2050, you know, this is already happening in the 2020s. So we have to be quite prepared for it. So one of the solutions is adding in other mode of transport to the city transportation infrastructure. So, you know, please don't quote me wrong here. I'm not saying that carrying transportation up into the third dimension will solve all our problems, all our traffic and congestion problems. It will only add another layer that will introduce resiliency and uh, some sort of increased scale to our transportation networks. I think the fortunate thing here is the technologies are there, the companies are there working really hard before these problems uh, kind of engulf our society. So we still have time. We just have to make sure that we invest in the right companies. We ensure that regulatory and policy innovation is there. And we make sure that in the third side of this equation is, of course, informing people of how this market pool actually can be addressed partially by this technology push caused by the advanced aerial mobility revolution. So if I understand correctly, and the problem you're trying to solve is basically the transportation problem that's gonna be a problem very soon and very potent very soon as a result of like huge swaths of people moving into your mega cities or giga cities or whatever you call them. So is that is that correct, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And in terms of that, so obviously you talked about adding an additional layer on top, which is maybe gonna ease the kind of mobility, you know, in the main base layer, which is the roads and the ground, really. Um, Elon Musk obviously goes a layer and thinks the layer is beneath the ground, you know, with this hyperloop. So how do you think that idea dovetails with your idea of being above the ground? And which is basically, let's talk about the pros and cons of that. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not a person who only advocates one, you know, form of transportation. You know, you really have to see this in a multimodal slash smart city perspective. Perhaps the first, you know, pro 
pros that I can think about uh, looking at underground transportation, high high speed rail, is the fact that it, it enables a lot of scale. So you know you have many many wagons that you can put into a single single trip, uh, perhaps hundreds of people. Especially in the early maturity of advanced aerial mobility, you can perhaps put anywhere between you know, four, four to five people in a single vehicle to, you know, if you look at electric conventional takeoff and landing aircraft, which are essentially an electrified version of regional turboprop airliners, perhaps 20 to 30 people to 40 people. So from the perspective of scale, Hyperloop wins or other types of ground-based public transportation. In the pathway and journey to advanced air mobility, often we might pull the reality card out and ask ourselves, hey, how is this even possible when we have so much of other priorities? But it's interesting, I asked Premier the same question, and he has this interesting theory about infrastructure costs as well as path versus node-based networks that exist. I would like to point our listeners' attention to the costs of rolling out any type of ground-based transportation network compared to doing doing that in the air. And perhaps we can talk about how this crucial infrastructure cost that is much lower on the aerial mobility side is enabled by the concept of nodal versus path-based transportation networks. So path-based transportation networks are essentially networks that are that can only expand once a new path is built connecting an additional node into the network and a node is any origin or destination location that our listeners can think about so to ex- expand a rail network and add additional stations you would have to first of all identify the next destination but also add the rail dig underground for tens of kilometers And in addition to that, you have to maintain all of that as you start operating that transportation network. So that that is a huge cost. You know, if we look at uh, underground, perhaps you need to spend somewhere between 75 to 150 million dollars per kilometer of underground, which is insane. And Hyperloop is, you know, so much more than that. I don't know the exact cost, but, you know, you can say, oh, maybe we should build some more roads. Uh, That is also... Uh, problematic because although it is you know, lower on the cost scale, it costs somewhere between two and a half to 10, 11 million dollars per kilometer to, to expand your network. That, that is a problem that I see. But if we look at node-based transportation networks, we talk about a whole, maybe not a new paradigm, but something that our ancestors have utilized quite well. And a node-based network is essentially, you can think about it as an example of this as a maritime network. So every time, maybe we can talk about Phoenician city-states. Every time the Phoenicians ventured from uh, Lebanon, they established colonies along the Mediterranean. And whenever a new city-state was established, the, the connectivity of the network was not only increased by one, it increases by n times n minus one over two, n being the number of nodes in the network. So you can think of it this way. You add a new city to the network, and that city has connection to every other city that already exists in that network. If you have 10 cities, the 11th city comes into the play. You have you know 10 additional connections there. Compared to a path-based network where you would have to build roads 
uh, or rail between all those existing cities and the new one. Simply because the water is uh, allows, it, it essentially is your road and you only have to maintain your ship and build it as big and most efficient as possible and quite flexible. So that kind of makes an exact analogy of what we're trying to do here with electric VTOL aircraft. Simply by adding a rooftop landing spot in the middle of London, let's say over Waterloo, and planting maybe 100 other locations across the greater London area, you can basically introduce a comparatively infrastructure light transportation network and you know some of the estimates of creating a network you know this would perhaps cost somewhere between 400 to 500 million dollars to create a network of 100 locations to land in which uh, comes about a 25th of the cost so that is a huge gain compared to you know creating developing and sustaining underground rail for example that takes years to build so again you know adding these Vertiport locations for these vehicles to land in will not create the scale that rail brings to our communities, simply because today's technology only accommodates uh, four or five people in a in an in a single vehicle. But it is creating the foundation of something that is more going to come in our way in the next thirty years, which are larger vehicles that's going to enable more resilience into our city transportation networks. The interesting thing about the future of cities in the skies is basically that the experimentation to get there has already been started by a few different players. Obviously, we know about Neom, the new Saudi Arabian city that's been created from the ground up by Mohammed bin Salman's flagship project in LA as well as Singapore and a few other places including Nevada which has got an interesting legislation that passed. So we talk about some of the future cities which are being implemented currently and how that would play out in the years to come. So yeah I I worked in the NEON project over the last year and a half uh, mainly looking at the aerial mobility side of things you know how how to integrate this type of technology in a city that is built from scratch. And Naom is a few-year-old project that, that I believe was initiated by uh, Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia. It's a $500 billion project, essentially a, a new city, a huge city from scratch in the middle of the Saudi desert in a place called Neom on the northwestern part of the country. And it is uh, basically the size of Belgium. So it's really a region rather than a city itself, although the city makes the majority of it. And the goal for the Saudi Arabians is to, I believe, to achieve their 2030 vision, uh, which is essentially a vision to walk away from, you know, uh, relying their economy on oil-based sources and, you know, make it a more... Uh, futuristic service-based economy, attract, you know, tourists, entrepreneurs, innovations from all over the world and kind of uh, make Saudi Arabia uh, leaping forward. So the the city is very interesting in its own respect, simply because, you know, the, the leading experts in this field, urban planners, transportation planners came to Neom and they said to answer one single question. If we had to build a city from scratch, how can we make it resilient for the next 100 years? 
um, how can we make it as sustainable as possible, not dependent on any fossil fuels? And how can we make sure that the quality of life is is ideal, whether this is not having cars to travel, making uh, the city as walkable as possible, and ensuring that the city is designed in such a way that will not only give higher quality of life to people, but also will encourage businesses to come there, you know, implement futuristic technologies. So we're talking anything from the future of biotech to future of entertainment to uh, future of how supply chains work to, as you said, robotic nurses. And I think they will even have a fake fake moon on there, which is, I would say, more the uh, marketing side. But from a transportation network, it's amazing from my perspective. So the city is basically a line going from east to the west of the region, around 100 kilometers or so in length, perhaps two to four kilometers width. And this 100 kilometer strip of land has four different settlements. And these settlements are connected by uh, high-speed rail. I think they're thinking of Hyperloop for there. But also quite innovative supply chain technologies such as underground delivery tubes that will kind of provide a connection between warehouses to every person's home underground. So that's, let's say, if you want a medicine delivered to your door, you just simply order it through an e-commerce app and, you know, a, a capsule just shows up somewhere in your garage and you just pick it up and 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 that's so that's that's the vision. Coming to the aerial mobility side of things. So electric VTOLs don't have much space along the line because everything will be fed by, you know, high speed rail. But Neom will also have settlements on the coast, so the southern part of the line, but also in the mountains in the north. And what uh, Neom is thinking of doing is to connect the line to these bespoke settlements using flying vehicles, air taxis. So the advanced aerial mobility technology that I've been talking about. But it's certainly, I believe, one of the first places that flying taxis will achieve commercialization anywhere around the world. That's interesting. And this project is going to basically come to fruition when exactly? Air taxis especially? I don't want to be too speculative mm. about this, but I think they're hoping to have 1 million people living in Neon by 2030, but they mm. will have uh, the first people moving there by the 2022-2023 timeline to the coast. And with regards to air taxis, that is a question of certification. So if you know a flying car manufacturer gets a regulatory certification from the Federal Aviation Administration uh, in the US, perhaps by 2020. Four is is would be my guess. They will they will start deploying. However, what Neom can do, and I think this is very very interesting from a, a regulatory innovation perspective, is they can create sandboxes around mm. which to fly these vehicles before they're certified. Gain uh, essential data about edge cases and kind of accelerate these companies' uh, path to certification. But I think that's that's one thing that is really special about Neom, simply because you don't have any people living there. I mean, if you wanted to test flying taxis in a city like London or any city in the United States, uh, for example, uh, it's quite tough because, you know, safety is key and you have a lot of people on the ground. You want to make sure that you don't have a crash. Um, so that's that's one of the advantages of a place like Neom. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, and the other concept is basically, obviously, Neom is more like a government certified project, right? But obviously, you can create 
your own loss to a certain extent. I think I was just reading through three weeks ago, there's this bill in Nevada that came through that technology companies can, quote unquote, create their own governments, i.e. they're going to be having the same legal jurisdictions as a small county in the US. So do you think that's also going to enable a lot of these kind of sandboxes, not only in urban air mobility, but maybe other technologies as well? 100%, 100%. I think, you know, one of the obst- you know, the, the biggest obstacle here is perhaps regulatory innovation. And I would say the second one is public perception. So on one hand, how to make sure that these vehicles achieve safety levels on the level of commercial aviation that we see today and convince the regulators that your your product is able to do that. But on the other hand, how do you make sure that once you have these vehicles, people really see the clear benefit of it and they accept a few air taxis flying when you, when they look out the window and kind of accept some of the negative consequences that might arise. So we, we can talk about noise because these vehicles will not be 100% silent, although we're working towards that. Things about privacy. So, you know, the same thing about drones. Uh, you, you will have a lot of sensors, cameras on these vehicles, how to make sure that people feel their privacy is not violated. And of course, security perspective as well. So having these kind of autonomous regions of which Neom is actually quite a good example. I, I, if I am correct, they're looking to even have their own aviation authority uh, separate to the Saudi civil aviation authority themselves. So what Nevada can do is obviously I would love to see them, uh, you know, kind of put flying taxis in their vision as well, if if that's one thing that they would want to do, because it would hugely benefit the industry and they could, they could claim the uh, prize of, you know, being one of the first places in the world where uh, this kind of uh, entrepreneurial activity in the air is successful. So, yeah, I think uh, it's okay. a great development to look at. So the aspect about foundational technologies, which are quite radical in nature, is that they take a huge amount of germination period to really mature over time. So it's very important to figure out what is the capital allocation mechanism in society that would ensure that these technologies eventually end up being what they are. So whether it's venture dollars that you're funding in there, whether it's government money or any other type of institutional capital that we're funding, it's very hyper important to talk about what is going to be the funding mechanisms to bring these technologies to fruition. So I briefly cover this part of funding with Pamir as well. We first have to talk about the the funding uh, environment in advanced aerial mobility. You know, since the inception of this technology early to mid 2010s, we probably had somewhere around $5 billion of investment going into the space, which is quite minimal. If you look at in the last 10 years, how much funding has gone into artificial intelligence, I believe it's somewhere between 70 to $75 billion of investment. So you see the difference in there. And the problem that that is even more significant is, you know, this technology is not just software. It's a big chunk of it is hardware and hardware requires much more capital intensive strategies to crack. And on top of that, this is a highly regulatory constrained environment. You know, you can't just create your uh, software as a service and go and pitch it to enterprise uh, and just sell it. You have to first 
design your product. And once you do that, you build some prototypes, then you build a full-scale prototype, which costs a lot in its own sense. You do a lot of flight testing. You make sure that all the you know aerodynamics, the flight controls of the aircraft are correct. And then you start your uh, discussions with a regulatory authority like the FAA or in Europe, EASA. And you iterate, reiterate, and once you achieve certification, you probably already have spent a couple of hundred million dollars. Then the next problem is how to make sure that these vehicles can be manufactured at scale. We're talking about getting close to automotive mass scale manufacturing. I mean, today's aviation companies produce at most a couple thousand aircraft per year per company. You know, we need to get at least hundreds of thousands, you know, and to achieve that scale, to go from initial concept stage to mass scale production, you need somewhere between 500 million to $1 billion. And we have right now perhaps 20 companies in the space that have serious venture and government grant money, but only $5 billion of total investment in this space. So you you see the discrepancy here. So the timelines are really long. You can't expect the institutional in- investors to have returns from these companies in four or five years time from inception. This is more like, a, I would say, seven, eight year, 10 year type of timeline even if if we want to see any profit coming out of this company so what's what's really coming in this space in the last few months is a lot of SPACs happening which is crazy if you think about it because these companies don't have any revenue uh, today forget about profits so these special purpose acquisition companies just you know get formed and they acquire these early stage companies that are highly promising and highly technology and hardware in- intensive so that primary objective is to create a cash injection to these firms. Otherwise, really not possible to have them continue their design work. So, you know, looking at the space right now, there's about seven to eight companies that are going uh, SPAC that have not finalized their deal. So in the last one month or two months, you know, they, they have announced their uh, commitment for this. We see a combined post valuation of these companies of about $12 billion. And we see perhaps, you know, anything from the most highly valued company, a, a company called Joby Aviation in Santa Cruz, California, valued at $5 billion at a post, post val to European companies like Lilium based in Munich, Germany, that are valued somewhere between 1.8 to $2 billion. So in one sense, I welcome that this kind of approach is happening because you need a lot of cash. But at the same time, the problem is these companies don't have a really working prototype that is certified. They don't have any revenue, really. And some of them are not even ready to be public companies with huge uh, startup mentality. You know, some companies in the space don't even have an organizational chart, which really is crazy to my mind. And they're getting these crazy billion dollar, multi-billion dollar valuations. So kind of get back to your question. This this was kind of the institutional investors way of ensuring that they can satisfy their portfolio goals in five to six to seven years at most. But the, the question is, after these SPACs are formed and some a few companies are 
funded really well through this. How about the rest? And how about going forward? And in my opinion, government funding is key here. And we have seen some of this initiative happen in the United States through US Air Force's kind of innovation challenge called Agility Prime. So basically what, what happened is the United States realized that they kind of lost the race on small drones to China and most of the supply chain has gone abroad. And they kind of realized this, you know, flying cars are strategic importance for for the United States. So we need to actually actively fund this technology through through government initiative rather than just leave it to the free markets, as has been the case in in most of Silicon Valley's history. Uh, Because this is not a you know, five-year game or a 10-year game. This is this really matters what happens in 2050. I would say perhaps not as important as uh, how AI is going to create competition between countries and competitive advantage between countries that are hugely different than each other. But certainly having the, this kind of technology in one's, one's military, which kind of provides quiet way of transporting troops and making sure that supply chain of militaries are kind of resilient is is what governments are waking up to today i mean yeah uh, public funding needs to be there and i don't think it is enough i mean the uk has an initiative called future flight but it's on as i understand it's on a smaller scale you know if i was the president of the united states or prime minister of of the united kingdom i would set a clear vision for the countries, transportation, future involving this kind of advanced aerial mobility technologies, because that's something that I haven't seen. And quite frankly, uh, having a top-down approach like that from from the government, I I believe would go a long way in ensuring that the right government money goes into the right companies in this space. So an interesting aspect about the cities in the skies and the urban air mobility is basically it's not only a developed world solution, but it also should be a conversation in the developing world. So it's not only your cities of LA and London that should be talking about it, but also the Jakartas and the Delhis very much as well. And obviously the developing world has different challenges when it comes to transportation in particular. But this is something I interrogated Premier as well throughout the conversation that how is the solution viable very much for the developing world? I think it's extremely important to talk about how advanced air mobility as an innovation has to make an impact, not just in the developed world, but in the developing markets as well. This is a great question around equity and fairness. You know, how do we make sure that uh, these vertical takeoff and landing vehicles are uh, not just a luxury segment service, and it's not a, a theme park for the rich, so to say, but it actually democratizes access to aerial mobility. Up until this point, about uh, 80% of the world's population has not even had um, a flight on an airliner. You know, if you go to the West, this is something that's very common. Uh, you perhaps fly four or five times a year if you're a businessman more, but the vast majority of the world has 
not had a chance to go up in the skies and travel with an airplane. Um, so we're in the dawn of a new revolution with these vehicles. And we got to make sure that from the start, this is uh, part of the emerging markets. And we actually uh, see big strides in that. If we look at the small drone world, if we look at the other side of the equation of VTOLs, these small drones that carry medical goods, um, cargo, that do surveillance, that give you an eye in the sky in a very cheap manner, is actually having an impact in the emerging markets today. We can talk about a company called Zipline, which is a drone company that is operating in Rwanda and in Ghana and in Nigeria today. And they have been doing so um, in the past few years where they've been ferrying medical goods, whether these are blood samples or, or medicines, between hospitals in Rwanda and far off, hard to reach remote villages where people sometimes have to travel three, four days to reach the nearby hospital. And already there's a great use case that is being explored there. And recently with COVID-19, I believe Zipline also started or at least uh, signed to do a uh, COVID-19 vaccine delivery in Nigeria using their drones. And, you know, we are already seeing the impact of these vehicles in these countries. But of course, um, I think a greater emphasis is needed. Uh, and that is what we need in this industry today. I would also like to talk about how uh, other use cases than just medical deliveries can make an impact in countries where transport infrastructure is not viable or not there for, for various reasons. Perhaps on top of the medical delivery use cases that Zipline has pioneered with small drones, we can also talk about a more culturally significant, historically important use case around this technology. Uh, in the past five years, what has grabbed my attention is using drones to kind of increase the significance of you know the emerging markets to the world. For example, in Cambodia, they've used drones with LiDAR technology to unveil previously unexplored portions of the ancient city of Angkor, uh, around the temple of Angkor Wat. So basically, the findings uh, that were given is perhaps only 15% of this incredible ancient city was uncovered. But with this new aerial technology using uh, advanced surveillance techniques, scientists have found that 85% of this area actually lies in the forest and they were able to identify it based on the shape of the terrain that can only be seen by using this kind of technology. Similar kind of initiative took place in the Andes Mountains. They used the same LiDAR-based aerial drone technology to uncover, you know, 500-year-old villages that were not seen by um, archaeologists before. So what I'm trying to get the point across here is that it is not all about economic value. It's not all about delivering uh, goods or or a much needed emergency cargo from one location to another in an infrastructurally poor location. But it's also about how can we use this technology to make sure that the countries in question, like Cambodia, like Colombia, have the means to uh, bring this incredible historical value to the world. And uh, perhaps that can lead into more tourism and more economic value coming into their country. So I think this is really, really important. If we scale this argument to the larger vehicles, the electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles that perhaps can carry four, four to five people, this is really 
a question about economies of scale, because um, if you look at the uh, leading companies in the space, we can talk about Joby, we can talk about uh, companies like Lilium. They are perhaps looking at selling vehicles or manufacturing them at a cost of about one to two million dollars per unit aircraft. This is obviously not uh, fathomable for the developing world. It's just way too expensive. And what's going to enable that cost to come down is we have to really focus on advanced manufacturing techniques and enable aerospace to achieve manufacturing scales that are currently found in automotive. I mean, if we look at aerospace industry, we can perhaps think about at most a couple thousand vehicles produced a year per company. Uh, but we need to get up to not just tens of thousands, but hundreds of thousands, which will enable these vehicles to come down in cost. And perhaps uh, in the midterm, we can see them come down to somewhere between 600k to a million. And in the long term, which I'm hoping is by 2030s, uh, we can see them come down to 200 thousand dollars. So again, this is not the cheapest uh, technology that we're talking about here. It's not like a $4,500 Chinese made car, electric car that is made for the city and for everybody to buy. This is obviously not going to be like that. However, if we turn the business model around a little bit, if we don't think these vehicles as for purchase, but for transportation companies, for mobility as a service companies to buy and then offer it to people as a service, uh, amortizing cost over many, many passengers over a year, amortizing cost over many, many hours of utilization over a year. That's when you can get the economies of scale. And I think that's going to be key for developing countries, governments to come into this play, subsidize at first, but then uh, scale the system up, increase the network of electric vehicles operating in a city like Jakarta, and eventually get the cost down. And I assure you, it's going to be much cheaper than rolling out highways that are connecting parts of a city or two cities together or underground or even overground. Uh, so the infrastructure economy cost argument is there. We just have to find a way to get these vehicles to be produced as number one, as economically and mass scale as possible. And number two, we have to make sure that we need to get the business and operating model right by seeing these as mobility as a service slash public transportation type of vehicles rather than just produce a vehicle, sell it to some individual who was rich enough to get it and for them to operate as a private asset. That is really interesting, Pamir. Thank you very much for coming today and sharing your views on urban air mobility and the future of humanity in the skies. I really hope we make the right decision as a civilization in terms of putting our eggs in the correct basket and achieving the goals that would actually further the cause and achieve the outcomes which is beneficial to humanity. 